0: The following dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota.
1: Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammāsambuddhassa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammāsambuddhassa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammāsambuddhassa. Good percentage, a large part, an important part of practicing the Dhamma is being on time. Life is happening, and what we refer to as mindful awareness either keeps pace with that to a certain degree or it doesn't. We all have some mindfulness, we all have some concentration. When our mindfulness and concentration is not quite up to speed and which is not quite on time, then we tend to live on automatic, we tend to live blindly. We tend to live according to the causes and conditions, the conditioning that we've developed over a period of at least this lifetime. And when we're sitting meditation, sometimes we get lost in thought. We may get lost in thought. Five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. It's okay, that's natural. Then we catch ourselves. We say, oh, oh, mindfulness was a bit slow there. Come back, check. Am I breathing in or my breathing out? Gently bring ourselves back again and again. As we become Maybe a bit more experience, a bit more adept. Mind slips for five seconds, ten seconds, and we think, "Oh, a bit a bit slow there." Oh, kind of get pulled into the content of that thought, and then we bring ourselves back, establish awareness. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, cognizing. This is what we. Project is our reality. Can mindfulness keep pace with that? Perceptions. How much of our world is created by perceptions? Perceptions of what we hear, perceptions of what we see, then project it out. Just taking perception as a meditation in and of itself. How do we perceive ourselves? How do we perceive our experience? just seeing something. It's very simple. And yet already with, with seeing does the perception I am seeing arise. Immediately reinforcing a sense of self, positing uh, a sense of self there. I separate from that which is being seen. Hearing, it's just sound. Pleasant, unpleasant. And gradually, mind becomes more quiet. I just returned from two weeks up in the north woods. I just noticed, even after a week of being up there, regularly practicing just being there, start to notice there's lake, there's forest, there's bones. Flesh, perceptions, and a lot of silence. So, interesting. Just watching, just watching the mind. Oh, thoughts not arising. Silence. Feel more and more just not separated from nature. Or what was it that used to make me feel so distinct from my environment? Gradually melting away a bit. Oh, this is part of the environment, too. This is the environment. Just kind of melting into the forest and melting into the lake. Watching the mind that's not thinking. Then the thought arises. What would happen if I had to give a talk and no thought arises? That's what would happen.) <laughs> it was like, well. People would say, "Ah, John, that was, that was so profound. What was it? Oh, it's just, it was the silent transmission. It was like a mirror forcing us to look at ourselves, not finding refuge in the teacher. It's just being quiet. Or it's like, hand someone a pine cone. So it's a silent transmission. Normally, I live in New Zealand, coming back to the United States is always a very interesting experience. I love coming back here, and it's kind of a bizarre place. (laughs) It's lovably bizarre. And, uh, And it gives me the opportunity to to watch reactions and perceptions that arise. Visiting family. Visiting family is great for Dharma practice. Dad says something as if he's an expert in Buddhism, categorically, confidently says something that is actually not true about Buddhism. How quick is am I on time? Is my mindfulness on time? If I'm not on time, certainly when I was a younger monk, I was like, oh, could have been could have been a lot more fun, a lot more interesting in a sense. Getting into a bit of a discussion. And I was like, and you just kind of let it wash over. It's like, oh, that's sound coming from dad.
2: <laughs>
1: oh, kind of you know, washes over me and it's like, hmm, should I react? Well, we have to react. Even if, even if we react by being still and aware, that's still a reaction, it's a wise reaction, or yeah. moving in that direction. There's a variety of reactions, and it's kind of, kind of give the spaciousness, oh, there's, there's dad's, sounds of dad, dad's opinions, dad's judgment. <laughs> like Buddhist monasticism is an archaic tradition, it has no relevance to the modern world. Okay, fine. That's just sound. And then and then react, you know, how do we react to that? Not, oh. If mindful awareness is on time, then it's like, oh. Didn't hit anything. Well, that was great. It's like it's like you go home, visit families, It's a great test. It's like, oh, great. Blood pressure didn't even rise. It's like, oh, I still feel calm and peaceful and centered and balanced. So this experience of what we call reality, being on time, is so important because uh, if we're not on time, we can really make a, a mess of the whole thing. A mindfulness is that, you know, that aspect of awareness which can convey certain elements of the spectrum of what we project as our reality, convey increasing amounts of it so that we have more information to work with. Otherwise, we just tend to be aware of very small snippets, here and there snippets. And then even if we're intelligent and well-intentioned, it's very difficult to make wise decisions based on insufficient information. So, mindfulness is that which conveys information. It's just, it's an impersonal process. It's not like "Ah, I have to be mindful. But when there is more mindfulness happening, then we notice more things. We become more and more sensitive, more and more aware of other people, of ourselves, of our own perceptions. What are we projecting? And what do I bring to this? How How am I assuming a certain reality that I that is unquestioned, and bringing mindfulness to to more and more aspects of of normal, daily life. Suddenly we start noticing things that we've never seen before. Why is it that the Buddha placed so much emphasis on body awareness, the continuity of mindfulness, establishing mindfulness with the body every time you reach for something, every time you pick up a cup, Every time you drink water, feeling that, feeling the whole process, the weight of the cup, the movement of the arm, the intention, the gratification of intention to set things down. Right? Why is it that that so much of the training has to do with mindfulness of the body? Because it establishes our awareness in a relative continuity in the present moment. If we're aware of the body, then we can be relatively assured that we're aware of something that's happening in the present, especially when the mind is working so quickly, so fickle, then establishing awareness in the body is very grounded, especially when there's a lot of energy from the neck up, focusing on parts of the body like the feet, legs, hips, chest. These are areas where we can actually bring the the energy back into a grounded stable position so whatever we're doing you're walking great got meditation time Hmm? when we're sitting you say you say we're too busy to meditate well next time you're on the toilet you're sitting perfect right i mean what else are you going to do All right. Well, you know you are just perfect up and no one's going to it's like it's like your own retreat time. No one's going to bother you. You're like you're sitting on the toilet. Good. Sitting meditation, right? Body awareness, right? Is there anything here that I habitually don't look at? Mm-hmm. Right? Just fully aware, established, grounded. Take a few deep breaths. Everything relaxes and there's letting go. So establishing bits and pieces throughout our day where we can take that as our meditation uh, to help increase the continuity, like when we're brushing our teeth, when we're taking a shower, when we're eating. These are relatively simple things that we do throughout the day, but then take that opportunity. This is valuable time. When else are we going to practice? Take these opportunities throughout the day just to sit. You know, breathe. When you're watching your computer screen, once an hour, just stop, close your eyes, take three deep breaths. It only takes 15 <laughs> seconds. These 15 seconds, three deep breaths. <coughs> three mindful breaths. And everyone can do that. That's not outside the realm of of a uh, skill level of anybody. Three deep breaths and it's so grounding, bring us back into the body, it settles us down, and then continue on. It's fifteen seconds very worthwhile invested. With some of these perceptions that we have, some of our habitual habits, very deeply ingrained. So it takes repetition over and over and over again, bringing us back. Is my mindful awareness on time? Are we up to speed? Is it quick enough? Mm -hmm. Because life keeps happening. Perceptions keep happening. Sights, sounds, smells. Mm -hmm. Can I be aware of this without being thrown off center? And we we get good for a while. And then we start to see, oh, some things are really deeply ingrained. A couple of weeks ago, I was riding in a car with a Tibetan Buddhist nun. She was driving along a mountain road in California, and we were talking about the role of Asian teachers and transmission to the West and how it works with Western students and monastics. And, and, uh, and then suddenly this car came around the corner very quickly, half an hour lane. She veered off. Suddenly it said, "Jesus Christ!"
2: <laughs>
1: and veered back into our lane. And we looked at each other, and just <laughs> and we just cracked up. It was like, yeah, that is so deep in
2: there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh God, we had so much fun. And uh, and so much of of uh, you know so much of what seems so important is just what what where's the substance you know? I mean it's good we can't it's not something we can force ourselves to do we can't we can't force ourselves not to um, to be scattered. Even if we have the intention, oh, I'd like to be centered and balanced and peaceful, well, I'm not going to force myself to be centered and balanced and peaceful and content. It doesn't work. It arises from causes and conditions which come back to the basic building blocks of are we paying attention? If we're grounded in our body regularly, then we start to notice our mind more. We start to notice, oh, there's this thought again. Oh, a worry arises. Right? Am I caught in the worry? How how much time do I spend worrying about the future? You know, a worry arises if mindfulness is there, we notice, oh, there's that worrying again, and then it ceases. And then the mind goes quiet and noticing there's not just thinking, there's not just activity in the mind, but when something ceases, then there's space, and that space is intrinsically peaceful. Like spaciousness, like silence, is an intrinsic quality of, of a pleasant, Peacefulness about it. And when we pay attention to that, then the mind will incline towards that direction. Mind will naturally incline towards that which is peaceful, that which is um, going to give a greater degree of pleasure. Now, if we're conditioned to think that pleasure is only going to come from paying attention to the thoughts, the thoughts, the actions, the the the, the, the ripples in our consciousness, that are calling for attention, then that's what our life becomes. It's only that. But just noticing, okay, well, there's a thought. right? There's thinking, and then it ceases. And then there's space, and then it may arise again. We catch it. Be on time. Mindfulness being on time. We catch it again, and then it ceases. We catch it again, and then it ceases. But then gradually through that, every time it ceases, there's that little bit of, Ah, there's a little bit of space, a little bit of space in between the thoughts, a little bit of space in our minds. And then what we pay attention to will grow. And if we pay attention to those little slivers of peace and space and centeredness, then that tends to get bigger and bigger until finally that becomes the norm. And then you feel like spacious and then something arises within that and you say, oh, there's a worry. But I'm already happy now. Why should I fear for the future? Like what is, and you say, well, what is the purpose of worrying? Well, I worry because I want to figure out the future so that, because I'm kind of afraid that maybe things won't be pleasant in the future, and so I'm going to uh, try to worry and, and think about how I can make the future just right so that I have the perfect moment in the future and everything will be fine, and then I'll be happy and content. But, but actually I'm I was perfectly happy and content until that worry arrives. <laughs> like perfectly, well, a present moment. Oh, actually I have everything I need to be happy right now. Why fear for the future? Because if you want to have a, if you want to have a future that's free from worry, then, you know, plant the seeds right here and right now. You just be happy, here and now, and it actually is taking responsibility, yeah. that is taking responsibility for the future. So being on time, and then we start to see, oh, this, these thoughts, what is it, what is it that keeps our life going? It's, it's like tornadoes in Minnesota. You, know, you look at a tornado, and it's just, you know, where's the substance there? There's, there, you know, there are air molecules and there's energy, but this it's very difficult to, to point to something that is an actual tornado. It is, I mean, there's a concept that we place on a, a moving, whirling, <coughs> swirling, energetic, but then it ceases, and where does the tornado go? And then we have... Body, feeling, perceptions, thoughts, consciousness—kind of swirling around, causing destruction, <laughs> causing physical and emotional destruction. But where's the substance in all of that? And then, what happens when, when, uh, when the tornadoes of our five kind of ceases? Where does it go? So being on time with perceptions, catching thoughts happened to me recently. It was one time recently where I really noticed, oh these years of training have paid off. A couple of months ago, in New Zealand, Lumpal Semedo visited. And about six months prior to that we had heard that he was going to come and visit, and he's the most senior uh, teacher in our tradition, and he's in his 80s now, it's unlikely that he would visit again in such a remote place as New Zealand, uh, so I thought it was a very special occasion. And he had been there for the groundbreaking or ground blessing ceremony for our stupa, so um, maybe we should really finish the stupa now, and we'll put the Buddha relics inside the stupa, and it will be a very special occasion, and so whole summer then kind of, fu- kind of was, was, was uh, focused on getting the whole monastery ready for this w- very special week. You know, many teachers came and Dhamma talks every night and, and, uh, and then that all culminated with um, the, the biggest event we've ever had and Lumpal Semedo gave a talk at our stupa and it was a beautiful day and we had uh, many hundreds of people there and, 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 uh, and then after all the auspicious chanting then it was all culminating with putting the relics in the stupa so to get the relics into the upper portion of the stupa stupa is kind of shaped like bell shaped and the stupa the relics were going in the top portion of it to actually get it up there you had to well we had to figure out how we're going to actually get it up there because the the box that the relics are in weighed about 200 pounds because it was filled with crystals. It was all, they're all sealed in stone containers and in a stainless steel box and then uh, welded into a plastic polyethylene airtight waterproof box and all filled with clear crystal chips. So the content The total content weighed about 200 pounds, so you couldn't just carry it up in a ladder and put it in. So we had to figure out how we're going to actually get it in, so eventually we found the super heavy duty boom cherry picker, hydraulic boom arm that would bring us up there. And it was kind of expensive, so we didn't have time to rent it ahead of time to practice. And uh, the big event was on Sunday and uh, our super hydraulic knuckle boom cherry picker arrived on Saturday morning. And we had it all planned out perfectly. <laughs> there would be a skilled operator, and myself, and the box of relics, and maybe Ajahn Samedo, you know. But Ajahn Sumedho, he, he looked at it he said, maybe not. <laughs> and said, so that's fine. So a skilled operator and myself and the box of relics would go up at the at the perfect time uh, with all the sangha chanting, and I would just ceremoniously push the relics into the stupa, culminating an entire summer's, you know, focus. <laughs> and then Saturday morning, we could say, well, let's, well, let's do a practice run. So the, the, the skilled operator and myself and the relics went up and we got to a certain point and the the hydraulic arm boom would not work anymore because it was too heavy with three of us in there. The skilled opera media and the Buddha. And uh, and all the controls were on the dashboard of this basket. And so suddenly it, it dawned on me that well it was it wouldn't really be appropriate for the, the contractor just to go up there and push the relics in. It's like, okay, ceremoniously, so it doesn't quite work. So it dawned on me actually, I'm going to have to do it myself. So I started to have to learn how to. I mean, it's just a mass of toggle switches and knobs and, and a pedal that needed to be depressed at the same time. And, and you know, it can go take you in every direction, <laughs> left, right back, forward, high, low, and uh, you hit the wrong one, and you can dump yourself out. <laughs> There's, and so we had all these big events going on, and when we had a break, I would come up and practice with this thing. Go up, down, go up, down. Yeah, just gonna, I enjoyed that. And it seemed like it would be fine. It's like, oh, you can Good practice, kind of maneuvering it just in the right position, and out, down. So it's so, okay, I think I got it quick learning curve and then uh, and then on the, on the actual day so Lumpau Semedo was standing down there and Lumpau Piek was also a highly respected meditation master had come from Thailand for the occasion and all of these invited monks and nuns were all down there we're chanting and and then I'm going up in this lift with a box of relics and we get to the stage and we're, it's like get it just so it's about just the right spot and a slight incline so I can push it, push it in. Put a, we had a little piece of uh, plywood bridge, put it there and it was just push it in. And so then I just started to, to push it in, outside of the safety of the basket, so here we go, and then it got stuck because there was only about that much of a gap all the way around. So it got stuck. And it was no longer in the safety of the basket and it was not yet in the stupa. So it was just kind of hanging in midair. You know, it it had a little bit here in the basket, a little bit here in the, you know, the box is like this big. So one corner was in here in the stupa, the other corner was on the basket, but most of it was just in under, you know, it was just hanging in, in the air and it was stuck. So I realized I'm going to have to actually um, maneuver this to get it into the right position now, right? And as it was, as it was stuck there, hundreds of people staring, watching, looking up at me, <laughs> right? <laughs> we thinking, you know, and then I felt my blood pressure rise. And I had this vision of, I hit the wrong toggle switch, pull back, the box of relics tumbles down the side of the stupa and lands on Ajahn Samedo, our revered teacher, <laughs> and kills him. <laughs> or, and this was a realistic possibility and it just kinda comes as a flash. It's just, you know, mine's very quick. It comes as a flash. The whole scenario as well as as well as the future scenario, 50 years from now, I'll be dead, but my name will come up and say, Oh, Centico. Isn't he the one who killed Arjun Tomato?" But yeah, yeah. This is like, it's like in a flash, it all comes up, the whole, you know, this could be a disaster. This could be an absolute disaster. And then you feel that, I felt that a little bit of, a little bit, I felt the, felt the panic starting to rise which would cloud my mind, and I thought, and that's, and then I saw this, that's panic, but this is clarity, and in this moment, I think being clear and calm would be more useful because if I panic, I really am likely to hit the wrong toggle switch, you know, it'd be much more easy to make a wrong decision. And, and it just dawned on me, in the midst of all of this, that that was like the culmination of like 35 years of meditation practice. Yeah. Yeah. To, be, to be able to, to see, okay, well, there's, there's panic, And, you know, it seemed to be a legitimate time to panic. Yeah. You know it seemed to be a reasonable, reasonable response, like a panic. It's worthy of panic. but then it's, um, okay, well that's just, that is a response. And then I felt like, oh, mindfulness was on time. Mindfulness was on time. Just notice, oh, that's not a helpful, wise, beneficial response. How about if I just stay calm? <laughs> so, so, I, so fortunately I did. And... Uh, And meanwhile, you know, everyone's keep chanting and they, they started off, we have a series of photos. Everyone starts off like kind of really hopeful and, and, and they're like, you know, like chanting away, all the monks down below chanting. And then kind of halfway through, they're kind of going really a bit. And then later photos are like, you know, it's like they all look so worried. But, you know, because it was kind of going on for a while, and then, and then to their credit, they never stopped chanting. You know, they just kept going and going, and like, oh, you know, felt the support of the community. <laughs> so the thing is, you know, what uh, I had to support it with one hand, then put my foot on the pedal about the same level, and then reach up to the dashboard. And so I had to kind of guess where the right toggle switch was, and and I knew it. Yeah, and just going a little bit, chip, because it's extended the full length, just a little, chip, and it goes boom, 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 boom. And it kind of bounces a little bit. And so I just had to pull out. But if I pulled out too far, of course, everything would fall. So, and I had to go down. If I pull, went down too far or anything, I mean, fortunately, I went boop and I went, uh. so, okay. Another adjustment, another adjustment, I tried again, and got stuck. Another adjustment, finally, pushed it all the way in, yeah. So, and then after that, then I could really celebrate. After that, it was a sense of, yeah, that uh, is just one little practical moment where, you know, all these years and years of training really paid off. <laughs> or <laughs> one of the many opportunities is just like, you know, being with my father. You know? When something is said and you think, okay, is my mindfulness quick enough? So yeah, just stay calm. There's the there's the conditioned response that may not be helpful or beneficial or or wise and then there's the there's a whole range of responses, right? You just say, Oh well let's choose let's choose let's try to be clear and patient and kind and and uh and spacious and just you know look at this from a spacious balanced viewpoint and then and then things kind of fall into place in just the right way so that happened just before i started traveling so it's still a very fresh memory So when you come to America and America is just full of projected perceptions, <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing how strongly we can hold on to our perceptions. You know, when we really look at it, it just dissolves. You look at perceptions and it's just like, okay, we look at someone and we, a perception arises. That's valid in itself. Perception arises and when interpretation arises. But even just the basic perception that arises from our conditioning, okay, but that's all it is. You know, we we perceive certain people as, oh, um, uh, pleasant, unpleasant, beautiful, ugly, thin, fat, uh, black, white, Hispanic, Asian. You know, all these perceptions that in and of themselves, they're not necessarily a problem. You know, but we just perceive... We just perceive people, we perceive situations, but then we take them so seriously and that's when the problems start. Just because we perceive something doesn't mean it's real. It may be real to us in our, what we consider reality, but it doesn't mean it's validly real to anybody else. So when we start to develop a a relationship with our perceptions and start to catch them quicker and quicker and realize, God, we are doing it all the time. Even with good-hearted, well-intentioned people who are doing their utmost to be conscious beings in the modern world, we're still doing it all the time. You know, perceptions that we have of others, perceptions of my partner, perceptions of our parents, perceptions of our children, perceptions of people who are different than us. Right? You know, we go into a room or we meet other people, perceive, is this person like me? Oh, this person is like me. We haven't even met them yet, but just based on superficial appearances. You know, we feel, oh, I belong here, or I don't belong here. And you can't force people to, to change their perceptions, but we can be mindful of the process of perceptions arising, and then that starts to undermine the root of the problem. So, yes, we perceive, you know, oh, there's a perception. You know, someone, who, someone who looks different than us comes into uh, our sphere, our vision. What perceptions do we, do we assume? What perceptions arise even without trying? And just being with that, just noticing that. It's neither good nor bad, I mean it's so easy to blame ourselves if a perception arises and we notice it and say, oh geez, I'm a bad person because I had a perception of that person being different than me and, no, it's just a perception, neither good nor bad, but it's, it's not necessarily true just because we perceive something, it's not necessarily true. It was just, oh, well, that's a perception. You know, walking down the street here, you look at the different houses, oh, you know, I perceive that house is beautiful. I perceive that house is ugly. It's like that's just a perception. You, know, you catch it and you say, "Oh, that's just all it is," and it doesn't kind of throw the mind off balance. It's like, "Oh, perception of beauty, perception of pleasure." And the mind still may incline towards that which we perceive as beautiful or pleasant. You know, and that's natural, but. You know, that's all it is. Oh, we per- there's a perception that kind of pulls our mind that way. If we are not mindful, if our mindfulness is slow, then our mind gets pulled off balance. Or for uh, perception that, that maybe brings up anxiety, right? for perception of we perceive something in some way and then we can respond with anxiety, we'll just notice oh, that's just a perception, then it's a conditioned reaction of, of anxiety. Okay, that's fine, neither good nor bad. But we don't have to take it any further than that, and just and that calms down. You know? And then life really becomes interesting. you know For one thing, life is really interesting. You just notice, oh, oh theres perception rising of that, and perception rising of that and that and that, and how, how different it is, without feeling like we're a slave to our perceptions, without feeling like we have to create this whole reality that we're, we're a That we have to form opinions based on our perceptions and fight for these opinions because if we perceive them and if we hold these perceptions, then they must be right because we wouldn't intentionally hold perceptions that were wrong. So when people hold different perceptions, sometimes opposite perceptions, if everyone's practicing in this way, it's not a problem at all. This is kind of interesting. Oh, you perceive this as delicious. I don't perceive it as delicious. But the food itself is neither delicious nor non-delicious, it's just perceptions. But we can li- make life so complicated unnecessarily. You know? In the modern world it's just, it, it takes a concerted effort to develop a sense of simplicity. Everything is pulling us towards complication. Material complication, technological complication, emotional complication. and and perceptual complication, so much information, so it takes a, a, a special concerted effort to try to simplify okay? and, just, and just noticing, you know, if mindfulness is on time, then things become much more simple. Even if life is swirling around us, it's a bit like the eye of a hurricane, it's swirling around but in the center it's still, it's still, it's peaceful, right? Coming back to America every year, you know, you come back to them, you live with someone and perceptions of the other person, you don't notice so much, the gradual changes. But you come back once a year and uh, perceptions of people's physical condition changes. What we call aging. And so, oh, and notice how we... Pre- perceive people differently, you know, when they start to age, you know, when they look different than, the, than uh, they did a year ago, or two years ago, or five years ago, when we last saw them. Or if we have a, a fixed perception of somebody else, or a fixed perception of ourselves, even if it's just a mass matter of our, our body perceive ourselves looking a particular way and then it changes then that's going to be a cause for suffering. Because life is not static and if our perceptions become static then that's going to be a cause for friction and suffering. So perceptions need to be fluid enough that they're able to keep pace with the changing nature of life. When we come back and say, oh bit more gray hair? Oh, a bit heavier? Oh, a bit thinner? Oh, a bit fewer teeth? Oh, you know, whatever. It's like, oh, perception change, right? And how is that a problem, right? Is it a problem <coughs> if things change and we want and we don't want them to change? Then, when you get down to the culmination of aging, is it bad karma to assist someone in suicide? Is it bad karma to make a conscious decision to end one's own life under certain circumstances? It's a question sometimes Buddhists wonder about. With the legal, it may be legally allowable, but then you wonder, karmically, how does that work? Karma is very nuanced. So although it would be easier to say, oh, this is good karma, this is bad karma. The reality is much more subtle than that. Many many factors determine the results. Even the words good and bad are not very skillful to use because that is subject to condition, social conditioning. Which is bringing this out, if there is an intention to kill, but then there is also all these mitigating factors, and our intention may vary from moment to moment to moment. Intention or motivation is the essence of karma. And so, how then, you really, mindfulness has to be so vigilant to keep pace with it. Especially with the intense decisions that one might make in life. So what, just watching the motivation, moment by moment, you know, because it changes. It's not, it's not just one, it's constantly changing. This really came up for me recently on the the plane flight here. Coming to America, I came from Thailand to Malaysia and then had a stopover in in, uh, Indonesia and then gradually to New Zealand and onward here to the US. And one of the legs of that very long journey was from Malaysia to Indonesia. So I'm waiting in the, the airport lounge. The, uh, sorry, the, uh, the gate. I was at the gate. A bit tired, a bit kind of just ready to um, be still and quiet and, and uh, um, have a nice, quiet flight. And a uh, young woman came and sat down opposite me and said, "Bante, what is the meaning of life? And, uh, you know, part of my conditioned response was to kind of roll my eyes and think, oh, kind of of go, you know, internally think, just because I'm dressed like this, people, you know, sometimes kind of strange people come up and ask me, what is the meaning of life in airport gates? And so, but but then i said well you know the wise you know the kind wise patient response is to is to really kind of try to tune into that person and to and to answer as fully as i could so we talked a bit about i mean it's such a vague question it's almost meaningless but i tried to tune in to what the person was asking what she was asking and um, we talked a bit but you could see she was she was a, she was a bit troubled and uh, a bit unstable, and I have to admit, when it was time to board the plane, I was um, grateful. I said, okay, great, I could say, like, you know, goodbye, have a great flight, and and I could go on the plane and just sit quietly. So, I got in the plane, and, um, and the seat that I was given, some of, there was something wrong with the seat, but there were half the plane behind me was all empty so I asked, is it okay if I take one of the seats back there? She said, sure, sure. They had the, so I, I went back and sat back there. And as I was walking back, the same woman said, ah, I want to sit next to you. <laughs> it was like a, you know, three-hour flight. So, so she's like, you want know, wanted to sit like right next to me. And just immediately started, you know, asking all these questions. And... Uh, so I was like, okay, proper response is you know, patience, empathy, kindness, understanding, right? This is like how we train in daily life. And then as she was as she was speaking, it became more and more clear that she was really kind of depressed and suffering and, and gradually, you know, uh, Bits and pieces of her life would start to come out. How uh, she just quit her job. Her, you know, she was so sick of her meaningless work and and uh, relationship with her family was uh, was pits. You know, she didn't have any good relationship with any of her family members. Uh, she felt she was really ugly. She didn't have a boyfriend. Um, it was like she was really depressed. You know, and she just yeah. You know, and then gradually, you know, we talked about that, and then. And I um, kind of say, well, how long are you going to be in Bali for? You know, why? You? Well, she was going to Bali. I mean, so well, what's the why are you going to build Bali? She says, well, she really just loves Bali and the people there. And, um, but she wouldn't an kind of answer how long she was going for. And then as we spoke, she said, oh, she just quit her job. Said, oh, just quit her job going to Bali. OK, well, you know, we talked about. Possibilities for her life and how she could turn things around and feel better about herself and her situation. And had she ever meditated and, you know, ways of looking at, at her life. And, and, um, and then it started to dawn on me that uh, she had actually made the decision to go to Bali to kill herself. And for at first it was just a thought in my mind just a thought. But then I was kind of thinking, kind of tuned into her. I thought, and then I just, as she was speaking, I just said, are you going to Bali to kill yourself? And then, uh, I mean, she just started crying. so then, uh, now we really have something to talk about, because uh, she had it all worked out. You know, she was, this was a one-way ticket. And uh, she felt that she had no other reasonable option, no reason to live. and she was going to Bali because she had been there many times and she felt comfortable there and liked the people, liked the place and uh, had no reason to go back home for, for any foreseeable positive possibility of the future. So I didn't try, it. I didn't try to say, oh no, don't do that. or. Um, oh, that would be bad karma, or uh, or try to in any way try to convince her not to do it. But try to understand. And and uh, and when she would ask a question, I would you know I would answer and give her a little, some feedback, and we talked, and gradually she was just loosening up and relaxing and feeling better, and then. Yeah, it was really helpful. And then we, we got off the flight and we uh, were walking through the, the airport I had to go off to the transit lounge. And by that time, you know, she was you know, smiling a bit and laughing. We were joking a bit. And then um, by the end, uh, we <clears throat> I had to go into the transit lounge and she was going to stay. Uh, and uh, by that time, she was like radiantly smiling by the end, just like radiantly smiling. So uh, it's like, wow, what a transformation. So I did what any Buddhist monk would naturally do. I I took a selfie of us. (laughs) It was like so. Both of us, like, radiantly smiling and happy and laughing and we took a couple selfies. And then uh, I went off and she went off and she has my contact details, but I've never heard from her. So I don't know. I don't know how to contact her. But, you know, people have to make their own decisions in life. And we can, we can be, try to be a positive influence. as much as possible but people have to make their own moral decisions understand the moral consequences of their decisions and then and then taking in all the possible factors that are available to them then hopefully come to a wise decision and again that comes back to mindfulness if if we're if we don't if our mindfulness is only aware of tiny bits of our life, then we just see the, the suffering, the hopelessness, the meaninglessness, you know, and you know, that's not the whole picture. And then we form a, a, a reality based on little snippets of awareness that is not, it's not realistic. I mean, it's not even realistic according to our entire diluted projected reality. And so, just getting her to, to kind of broaden that and open and, and be aware of, of a wider spectrum of her own life, she just started to see, oh, it's it's not actually all suffering. It's not actually all meaningless. You know, there, there are you know, bits and bits and pieces in there that are that are peaceful, nice, pleasant, uh, harmonious, and you know. and so. Just, just being as aware as possible, letting as much information in as we can handle, while staying centered and balanced, then, then that's about as good as we can do, and then we get more and more information, and when we have more and more correct information about our life and our how our minds work, uh, our thoughts, our our reactions, our emotions, then naturally the decisions that are based on all of that tend to be increasingly wise. Because if there's ever, ever a time that we really want to be on time with mindfulness, is when we're preparing for death. That's when we really want to be on time. Don't be late. <laughs> so... Yeah, we have time for questions if anyone would like to ask anything.
0: Thank you, Ajahn. Um, I appreciated what you said about um, projections and perceptions. I guess it was rather, and you know, just because we perceive something doesn't mean it's real. And um, I imagine, as you know, during your time as a monk, you know, practicing so devotedly, you've also likely had the experience um, of you know just because we don't perceive something um it doesn't mean it's not real you know over time kind of waking up to things that we couldn't see earlier in our practice and i know that the monastic sangha has rituals around helping us to see our blind spots and um and i think that's a really beautiful thing and i i um you know i I often wish that you know, culturally in the West we had more opportunities to do that work um, in community. But I wonder what practical um, suggestions you could offer us as lay people for how to bring about um, those kinds of openings to um, learning about our blind spots in daily life, if you have any um, ideas around how we can do that both individually and also in community with others. Thank you.
1: Uh, living with other people.
0: Living with other people?
1: Yeah. yeah. One of the rituals that you talk about in monastic life that helps us see our blind spots is living in community. Often we, we become monastics because we love the idea of living off in a hut in solitude and becoming uh, transcendently wise and peaceful and then we ordain and we're thrown into this community of a bunch of nutters, (laughs) which is a projected perception. (laughs) And you go and then suddenly you find yourself in a community and everyone's practicing intensely and everyone's got their own personalities and people from all different countries in the world and reacting differently to situations and sometimes you get extreme individuals and, and, uh, and but just living in community, even if you have wonderful, dedicated, um, good-hearted people living in community, they will eventually be a mirror for all of our blind spots. Because we can go off to a cave, and that is one aspect of practice. That is very helpful. Be on a retreat, go off into, a, into nature, um, and you can achieve a certain depth that may be more difficult to achieve in a group situation. But as strong as our strengths become, our blind spots be, can become even uh, equally entrenched. So I've seen this a lot with over the years, people who have um, maybe uh, wanted to go off on their own, you know, not live in communities and just go off on their own and practice, and they just don't develop the well-rounded qualities, you know, And and they may be really good in one area, but then have really strong opinions in another area that are just not challenged because they don't live with other people. So, living with other people is, uh, as you have to see it as this is, these are great opportunities. Partners, those little idiosyncrasies that used to seem so cute, you know, in the first couple of years, oh, they're so cute the way they do that. And after a while, it's like, God, why do they do this? so irritating. Why do they have to keep doing that? I thought they would have changed by now. And then, uh, and you realize, oh well, it's not really. The problem's not really with someone else, right? It's like, why do I perceive that? That is perception. Why? What is the cause for that perception of uh, uh, that I'm projecting? And then that becomes a mirror, and then we start to gradually wear away all of the, the rough edges. And if we just live alone, we tend to choose the type of reality that we want to live in. When we live with other people, they are so out of our control. They, we're just confronted with <coughs> opinions, differences, um, unpredictable emotions, and then how, what is our reaction to that? And then that, that's a constant teaching. So in terms of the fast path to enlightenment, living with other people is very good. It's very helpful to, uh, to make sure that we're, we're staying grounded and centered and, and, and balanced. Yeah. And then with that, of course, just developing this continuity of awareness. I mean, I don't even have time, as Abbot anymore, to sit meditation eight hours a day like I used to. So I've had to learn how to make every activity throughout the day into meditation. Now, that's easy to say, but how do you do it? Say, so, well, what is meditation? Meditation is not just sitting with our cross-legged, with our eyes closed. What is, what is the actual, what's actually going on in the mind when we're meditating? that we can then take into walking, you know, bathing, pooping, brushing your teeth, you know, these simple activities. Start with simple activities and then gradually you can bring that same quality into more more challenging situations like a conversation. A simple conversation with another person is very complicated, It takes a lot of mindfulness. To have a concept in our minds that is then goes out, we choose certain words and already it's, it's not the same as the concept and then the other person interprets those words based on whatever mood or social conditioning they are experiencing at that time. That forms a concept in their minds which is only somewhat related to the concept that we originally had and then, and then we try to form an understanding. Right? So there's a lot going on in a simple conversation, you know, the thoughts, the emotional reactions, listening non-verbally to other people. Right? So, so that is real practice. I mean, that is just full on. But it's, it's, there's so much happening so quickly that if mindfulness isn't trained with the simple things first, we just get blown over, over by it. There's so much going on. We just get swept up into our own emotions and reactions, or or thoughts and worries. So, just start with the small things. Take the opportunity when you are alone, or when when there's nothing pressing happening, just to practice. You know, if you're sitting, if you're sitting with a cup of water, you just practice drinking, paying attention to all the sensations. Try to get try to get as close to reality as you can, and just notice every time that we start to develop a whole layer of interpretation. You lift a glass up, you think, oh well, there's, there's just sensations, and there's sight, and there's, there's kind of physical feelings, and there may be uh, uh, a sensation of thirst or desire, right? That's getting close to reality, closer and closer to the basic raw materials of reality. So you have to train with very simple things first. And just notice how Quickly it changes when you, you say there's just seeing, but then you look at the cup and there's patterns and you think, oh, where's that come from? Oh, that's very beautiful. If It's beautiful. It's nice. You know, I like it. It's pleasant. Oh, if it's beautiful. I'd like to keep it. Maybe I can get one of these. Maybe if I ask Mark, he'll give me this cup because, <laughs> because you know, I'm a monk and he respects me. So maybe if I just say, oh, Mark, you have such a beautiful cup. So, Ajahn, oh, would you like this cup? <laughs> And this, uh, but then they think, oh no, that might actually be coming from greed, and I'm trying to overcome greed, so that wouldn't be proper, so I'll just sit and check right? So you know, life can get so complicated, it's just like, huh? just drink. And then you, you train simplicity, I mean, it, you have to work, In America, you have to work really hard to be simple. <laughs> you Just train train in simplicity, just drink, done. (laughs) And and then activity by activity, moment by moment, mindfulness, mindful awareness gets stronger and stronger and stronger and then we're then when we're confronted with something which is emotionally but charged and we're, we're kind of we have all this training and we're ready and we say oh there is there's that reaction. I could ch- I could react like that, but would that be helpful? Probably not. I'll just react like this.
0: Thank you
2: My name is Curtis. I was wondering, so you're talking about being on time and the conjunction between causes and conditions and bringing mindfulness to the present so that you're available to the moment and not being pulled like you spoke about your conversation with your father or I can think of any conversations I had this week. Uh, Yet, uh, I I guess I was reading something recently about uh, uh, something that the Buddha taught about um, not keeping company with fools, (laughs) I I think he said, so that he seemed to be saying, or the teachers seemed to be saying that there was some sort of energy around that, or or something was contagious around that or something, so I was... uh, (laughs) Yeah I'd, I'd like your yeah. observations about that
1: When we have a choice then it is wise to spend time with people who have qualities that we aspire towards If you want to be if you want to be calm spend time with calm people If you want to be wise spend time with wise people you want to be rich spend time with rich people if you want to be nasty and greedy and horrible spend time with those type of people right it depends on what we aspire towards uh, because we are conditioned by our by everything you know we're conditioned by the people we spend time with right? now we can only choose the people we spend time with to a certain degree right there's a lot that's just out of our control and so, and that's, that's okay, and that's where life is, and that's, that's where we can learn as well. Often, by, often it's the people that we wouldn't choose to be with that can expose our blind spots, right? Or give us the opportunity to be patient, forgiving, and develop those qualities. But if you have a choice, then yes, boy, by all means, you know, spend time with people who are going to encourage and support uh, those things that we want to develop in ourselves. You know? and, and particularly, if, if Dhamma is an important part of our life or something that we would inspire uh, towards, then spend time with people who are practicing the Dhamma. Or at least that, that's important to them. They don't have to be enlightened, right? but at least supportive. Right? Or even if they're not Dhamma practitioners, they might be calm, wise, friendly, balanced, cheerful, nice people. I mean, it's Minnesota, everybody's cheerful. So, um, you know, clarify what is it that I aspire towards and aspire to develop within myself, and do I know people who have those qualities, and then could I maybe maybe learn something from them just by being around them. Same thing with our environment. If we have the choice, then it's wise to put ourselves into an environment which is going to be conducive to what we want to develop. We don't always have the choice. Sometimes it feels like we have very little choice in what environment that we live in. You know, the job environment, the living environment, the natural (coughs) environment. But if you have a choice, then, yeah, I mean, it's very clear, you know, the, the Buddha didn't the Buddha didn't, say, ordain monastics and go into the heart of the city and practice meditation. You know, he said it was always encouragement to go off into nature, you know, go off into the forest, into the mountains. Yeah? Uh, because we, we can't help it, we are conditioned by our environment. And that's one of the roles of monasteries, like our monastery in New Zealand. Um, people come out of the city before they've said or done anything. They've said, oh, it's so peaceful here. I just feel so peaceful. And that is already, a, you know, for them, that's already a big thing. Just to have uh, a feeling of, of being calm and peaceful for an hour, right? Even if they haven't meditated or we haven't had any discussions or anything. So the environment does affect us. So if we have a choice, we can. But We can also get attached to, you know, we can get attached to the idea, oh, I should only hang out with wise people, not hang out with foolish people. I perceive you as foolish, you know, get out of my life. Uh, So that usually doesn't work very well. (laughs) So, and even, you know, you also have to just be careful with what we perceive. If we perceive, oh, I perceive this person as as wise, I perceive this person as, as, Foolish. I perceive this person as smart. I perceive this person as is, is useless. I, you know, those are just perceptions. They may be true to a certain degree. They may not be. But just be aware. That that's just our, our perception. So even though if we're just putting it into a line of chanting, we say, you know, it's, an, it's auspicious to spend time with the wise. And one should avoid spending time with the foolish. But when you break it down, you know, it's it's obviously much more nuanced and complicated than that, based on our perceptions. Thank you. Uh, my question is just related to, to possibly work, but when a lot of the activity in the daily life is around, even predicated on thought and thinking, analysis, opinions, writing, I find that I get oftentimes lost in that. I see other people in the same way. And I, I'm sure that you do a lot of writing. And, and how do you kind of work with that? Because you're actually obviously working with the thinking part of the mind and wanting to be observant on that and aware of what's going on. But you know, honestly, I can find myself working for eight hours and all of a sudden you know, with 20 pages of written text. And, and I've almost lost the day in some ways. <laughs> Yeah, I used to love to write. Especially before I was a monk, I used to love to write, and then I noticed when I was, the first few years of being a monk, there were so many new, wild, strange experiences and strange people, and I just wanted to write, like, character, you know, describe people's characters and all these interesting situations, and I just had to restrain myself, because it was just fueling so much thinking. So I thought, you know if i just keep fueling this and i'll just be thinking and thinking and vocabulary how can i phrase this in a more interesting way and i realize it's not really what i'm here for so i had to actually set it down for a while but then then later it, i find it just undertaking the The duties, the administrative duties or teaching duties involves much more cognitive engagement. So I would, one thing you do is just take a break. If you find yourself going for hours and hours, then just set an alarm. Whether that's something on your phone that goes off once every 45 minutes or so, once an hour, then just set an alarm that just and So, as soon as I hear that bell, you am going to stop, close your eyes, take three deep breaths. Well, that helps just to break the flow, especially with, at a computer. It's so easy just to get drawn into uh, the visuals, the, the information, um, the, the screen itself. You, know, you can kind of develop a certain type of, of <coughs> samadhi that is not necessarily conducive for developing wisdom, but you just get drawn into it, and then time passes very quickly. And just writing consciously, right? Just practice. You can actually practice. It's like, it's like we learn how to do things fast and not very mindful. But then just stopping and learning how to. Okay, I'm going to eat and drink very mindfully. I'm just going to walk mindfully. We know how to walk. We're just going to walk mindfully, paying attention to each step. We'll do the same thing with writing. You know, just, I'm just going to write a sentence being aware of the whole process and then stop. And take a breath, I'll write another sentence, aware of the whole process, right? and it doesn't really take that much more time, but it feels a lot slower, It feels a lot slower, and then gradually you know, we create new habits of how to relate with, with writing, typing, information processing, communication, in a way that maybe doesn't throw us off center so much, or we don't just get lost in the, in the, the content of it all. Or just chuck it all in. <laughs> 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 Thank you. It's always a pleasure to come back and uh, I was just up in Grand Rapids in the birthplace of Judy Garland, and uh, it's kind of true there's no place like home. (laughs) So every time I come back to South Minneapolis and look around, it feels like, oh, it still feels like home.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs,